again tonight. Were you all able to look over the Beatitudes? Matthew, the fifth chapter? Maybe, maybe not. We'll begin tonight with a pop quiz. <laughs> well, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you by faith for your presence here, that uh, you collect together with those who gather in your name. And we thank you for the joy and for the honor of your presence tonight. And we pray that by your spirit, you would uh, give us understanding of your word, cause it to come alive in us. We pray, Lord, that we experience and encounter Jesus Christ tonight as together we explore your word and that uh, in that encounter, Lord, we might, know, we might know Jesus more intimately and be transformed by his life. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> well, I suppose we should begin again with the parable of the sower, which is uh, uh, really the series we're working through right now. So let's open there to Mark, the fourth chapter. Mark, chapter 4. Beginning with uh, verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Now remember, he's, he has uh, he shared the parable publicly with a large crowd that gathered together. Now he's speaking privately to the disciples and explaining to them the parable. Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other, thing, other things enter in and choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, we, we uh, took a look at Luke real quickly, and, and uh, Jesus offers uh, this additional information concerning um, that category of heart, which is good ground. And that is that they receive the word in good and noble hearts. And so it suggests that motivation, our approach to the word, and our motivation for receiving that word plays a very distinct and crucial role in our response to that word and its productiveness, its fruitfulness in our lives. Um, I want you to note in this uh, a third, rather, in this third category of heart, that's the fourth category of heart, the third category of heart, the seed does not perish. It does grow up. It is, it is not, uh, the plant does not wither and die, but it fails to produce 
fruit. It is unfruitful. And uh, I think it's uh, crucial that we um, reckon with what he's saying there because I think he's dealing with a great many people who hear the word and yet it, it doesn't yield the sort of fruit which it might yield in our lives if uh, we were to dismiss from our lives these, uh, in particular, uh, these three elements that seem somehow to impinge upon fruitfulness. They are um, um, the worries of this world, or the King James, I believe, says cares of this life. Have you ever heard of those? Have you ever had worries in this world or cares of this life? That seems very common, doesn't it? And yet Jesus said that can diminish or eliminate fruitfulness in our lives. The deceitfulness of riches, um, and, and this certainly isn't dismissing the value of money, this we will explore further next week, but just very quickly, I want to visit uh, these three points tonight. Uh, what is the root of all evil? Money? No. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is, uh, I guess, morally and ethically neutral. It's a thing. It's our approach to money that determines um, it, whether it is good or bad for us. Um, it's interesting to me that Jesus singled out money as the thing which we will uh, worship in place of God. He didn't say, you will either worship um, fame or celebrity you will either worship status or you will either worship immorality or God. He said you will either worship God or mammon or money. Consider for a moment, what else mimics God so well? Money seems to offer a sense of security, doesn't it? A sense of well-being. It seems to offer to us uh, uh, the comfort that everything is going to turn out well. That I have everything in hand and under control. It seems to offer, uh, it, uh, it seems to upgrade our status among men. It seems to offer much of what God seems to offer. But in the end, of course, it delivers none of those things. Uh, and so he, he said, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches. And you don't have to be wealthy to be caught in that web. You don't have to be wealthy to be deceived by riches, do you? And then finally, the lust of other things. These three things can impinge upon fruitfulness in our lives. And yet we, uh, the seed has taken root. It's grown, but it is not producing fruit. And then uh, last week we began looking at this uh, second category of heart in which uh, the word is received immediately with gladness. There seems to be this spontaneous, joyful response to having heard the good news. Well, the gospel is good news and it's positive stimuli and so we embrace it heartily and happily. But, Jesus said, when offense comes, for the word's sake, challenges begin to emerge, perhaps even persecution. We'll, we'll discuss that more in a moment. He said immediately they are offended. So there, there's a certain impulsiveness here, isn't there? There seems to be a failure to grapple with the value of the gospel its true meaning and implications. Uh, and the motivation that lies behind its reception begins to uh, reflect something uh, less than good, something less than noble. It seems to be fairly self-centered. 
There is no recognition of, uh, well, certainly not the value of the word, but also its claims on our lives. Uh, what, the go- what the implications of the gospel uh, might be with regard to our obligation to it. That's, that's important. And so, in light of that, we began to look at uh, what, is the, what is the response of those who recognize the value and beauty of the gospel? What God in Christ wrought for us. There is a yearning in our hearts to please Him. To live a life worthy of Him. We, we reviewed these verses in John, in Colossians, in Romans. Uh, but it's not a works-based um, approach to um, pleasing Him. It is a loving response. It is our heart cry to bless Him, to worship Him, and to please Him because we love Him so. And why do we love Him so? Because He first loved us. David Uh, David wrote so beautifully, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you. I don't think that he's trying to score points with God in writing that beautiful prose. He's revealing something of the heart that has had an encounter with Jesus Christ. I suggest that it's very similar to what we experience in our own lives when we fall in love. I remember when I first met Beth, um, as as we uh, uh, grew in our relationship, the more I got to know her, the more I wanted to know her. Suddenly, I wanted to know all about uh, the years that had passed before I had met her. Tell me about your childhood. Of course, when you're early 20s, there's not a lot of time has passed. <laughs> That's like the little boy who came to Christ when he was five. He said, my only regret is I, I didn't do it sooner. <laughs> but in hearing about her childhood, in hearing about her adolescence, it was as if I wanted to travel there in my imagination and experience those moments with her because I wanted to be with her, be with her, present with her at that moment, and, and in a sense present with her in her past to, to know her better. You, you want to know someone you're in love with, but I also wanted to please her. That is, all of that is a product of a love relationship. And when you meet Jesus, You have an encounter with Him. He's no longer a figure of literature. He's no longer a figure of history. He's no longer simply a doctrinal Christ. You've had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. You cannot help but fall head over heels in love with Him. Suddenly, you want to please Him. It's your heart's cry. And you want to know Him more. So what is absent in the lives of these, uh, uh, these first two individuals, the one who heard the word and immediately it was plucked up, and the one who heard the word received it with gladness, but then became offended at that word? Uh, they lacked that experience. They lacked an encounter with Jesus. Why might that have happened? And this is important for us. If, if I'm correct, and there's always a chance I am. <laughs> um, these categories of heart can exist simultaneously. They can coexist together in our lives. There may be areas in which you are very receptive to the truth found in God's Word, but because of the traditions of men or, or the doctrines of men that you may have been taught that are actually in conflict with Scripture, or just areas of woundedness in your own life, there may be other areas uh, of God's Word that you are not nearly as receptive to or toward. You may, you may uh, 
be like this second category of heart in which you hear it, but it suddenly seems too good to be true. And for whatever reason, you reject it when it's challenged. And it will be challenged. Remember, the, the, uh, the first, one of the first important truths we examined here is that uh, one of the consequences of having heard the word is that Satan is coming immediately to take it away. First through argument, and then, then his assault escalates. And uh, you may be tempted then to reject that word. So I think it's important we understand the dynamics involved in this because it offers for us a remedy, a way to avoid that phenomenon in our own life and experience and instead be fruitful ground uh, so that God's word can flourish there. Okay, so let's look at Matthew, the fifth chapter then. This is what, where we left off last week. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, verses 1 through 11, these are, are frequently referred to as the Beatitudes. You, you've heard of that, right? The Beatitudes. I, I think we find in the Beatitudes um, the path one follows to salvation. These are the transitions which occur in an individual's life when they hear the good news and uh, respond to it. Uh, Matthew 5, let's begin with verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's make sure we understand what this does not say. It does not attach any virtue to poverty. He is not saying, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, taken apart, and these, uh, several of these verses often are, it can make little sense, or its real value can be diminished. I, I want you to see tonight a progression that Jesus is offering here. Let's begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit. What is he saying? I want you to turn with me, please, to uh, Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, um, chapter 2. Let's begin with verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. Look at your neighbor this evening. Find a pair of eyes, gaze into them, and say, you were dead. That's important that you and I understand that. Just say that. I was dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he's continuing to describe uh, just how dire our circumstances were. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Uh, look with me at verse, um, uh, let's skip ahead to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our state. We were without hope and we were without God in the world. I've discovered that people often come to Christ either as children or in the midst of crisis, some physical crisis or some existential crisis, they come to Him. And they receive Him as Savior, but they are receiving Him as their rescuer from their felt need at that moment. And what may escape them is the genuine crisis, the horrific crisis, their most profound need that actually exists, and that is their need for a Savior. Not simply uh, someone to rescue them from their immediate challenge, but uh, that, that will resolve the, the extraordinary crisis that's hanging over their life. You were born in sin. I was born in sin. We were all destined for the grave and hell. Eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. And there was nothing we could do to change that. Now, if I ask the average person today, well, if you were to die tomorrow, and suddenly you were standing before the pearly gates, I'm not suggesting there are pearly gates. It's a euphemism that we like. And St. Peter greeted you there and said, why should I admit you to heaven? And that's not how it works, but just follow me. This works for my story. <laughs> what would you say? Well, you know, a lot of people and even a lot of Christians are prepared to say, well, certainly there are some demerits against me, but I think um, all of the, the uh, positives stacked up on that side of the ledger uh, would grant me entrance into heaven. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I think I'm good enough for God to say, well, I've weighed you in the balances and there's more good than evil. Uh, a dear uh, friend of mine, Harold Bredesen, was my mentor, precious brother, and an extraordinary soul winner. He would pose that question to people. And, and one gentleman I met later who, who came to Christ, he was a health fanatic. He owned health and fitness centers, and he was, a, he was a, a health and fitness guru. And he began talking, to when Harold asked him that question, he talked about how I care for my body and I help other people care for their bodies. And he was real sure that that would grant him entrance into heaven. And he said, well, what do you think? And Harold said, I think Peter would say to you, John, you're one of the healthiest people we've ever had to send away from these gates. <laughs> For by grace are you saved. Through faith, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If it weren't for Jesus, we would be bound for hell. Without hope and without God in this world, we, we, we could not alter that past. That is the course that we would be on and we could do nothing to change it. I want you to consider for a moment that possibility. Imagine right now that that is your eternal destiny. Forever separated from God. 
forever damned. That is a horrific thought. I can think of nothing more nightmarish than to imagine eternity, which by the way is a long time, stretching out before me with no hope, forever separated from God, forever in torment. But that was the path we were irrevocably on. save for Jesus. We were dead. Look with me at Genesis, the first chapter, please. We're, we're going to explore this tonight, so I need you to stay with me, okay? Uh, what were we saved from? Well, we were saved from death. Genesis, uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. What does it mean to be dead? Well, Spiritually dead. Well, just as a, a physical corpse could not, can a dead can a dead man relate to the world in any meaningful fashion? Can't communicate with it. He can't experience it. He cannot he cannot relate to the world in any meaningful way. In that same fashion, a spiritually dead man cannot relate to God in any meaningful way. He cannot perceive God. He cannot hear God uh, in any meaningful way. Spiritually dead. We were made for life. Genesis 2, um, let's begin with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became what he became a living being what was it that granted life to man it was the breath of God and man became a living being. God gave us life. Uh, Genesis, uh, let, let's uh, jump forward to the 15th verse. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Or literally, dying, you will die. So when man sinned, in effect committed high treason, he began dying. Why? Because he was separated from God, the author and source of life. So from that moment, he began to die spiritually and physically. Now, let me just say something um, I, I find interesting, at least. Um, in the Genesis account, men were living hundreds of years, and there are people that are ready to dismiss that. Well, that's such nonsense. How can you believe a fairy tale like that? Men living hundreds of years. A few years ago, um, I had a, 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 um, uh, a group of uh, chemists and physicists working on uh, a component of a product we manufacture, in um, in Germany, and I flew over to Berlin and spent several days with Dr. Um, Alexei uh, Kalachov, who was Russian, had uh, moved to uh, Germany, and and their laboratories were there in Berlin. And I was having dinner with him one evening, and he was working on a project with the University of Berlin uh, in the genome mapping project. And he said, uh, "Now I don't." He may have been Russian Orthodox, he was a nominal Christian at best, but I don't, I mean, given what he talked about and the manner in which he discussed it, I, I wasn't under the impression that he was a Christian. Uh, but he said, we've discovered something interesting. They were working on um, identifying gaps in human DNA and restoring them. He said, what we've discovered is that Man apparently was created, that was the word he used, or no, designed, 
Man was designed to live hundreds, six, seven hundred years or more. But over the successive generations, the DNA has been corrupted and broken down. And so we're, you know, we, we are where we are today. And so that was part of that genome mapping project was to rebuild the DNA. And I thought that was intriguing from a man who I do not believe was a Christian, that he used the word design and then said, quite frankly, it's clear that man originally was living six or seven hundred years or longer. Um, so I, I filed that away. <laughs> um, but from that instant, when man, when man sinned, they began to die. And what was it that caused that death? Separation from God. They were, they were uh, dying from the moment they were separated from God. And the effects were, were immediate and, and became more dreadful as, as uh, time went on. Now, look with me at uh, John, the third chapter. John 3. You're familiar with the verse of Scripture. It, it often flashed at football games. John 3, let's begin though with verse uh, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He didn't wish uh, for his associates to know that he was communicating with this man they perceived as a threat. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is essentially saying, unless a man is born of me, comes alive spiritually, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That separation is, is a complete and lasting. It is eternal. Uh, the the, the uh, only way to avoid that is for a man to be born from above or born again. That was puzzling to Nicodemus and, and Jesus uh, began cryptically to explain to him what he meant. But I, I want you to turn now to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5 and let's begin with verse uh, 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. This is all dealing with life and death. To be separated from God is to be dead. Um, Harold Bredesen, whom I referred to earlier, he had a unique experience. He was lecturing at Tagawa House in Japan in, the, in, in uh, a remote uh, mountain area. And he was awakened suddenly at 2 a.m. And he lay there for a few moments and wondered why he was suddenly awake. He felt for certain God had awakened him. And so he thought at last, perhaps I'm supposed to go pray. So he dressed and made his way out doors to a chapel uh, that was, was uh, near the dorms where he was staying. And that it was locked up and he thought, well, that's unusual. I guess it's back to bed. And it was then that he spied a light through the forest coming from the open doors of a Shinto, an ancient Shinto temple. And uh, he thought, well, that's curious. They told me that uh, except for a festival there, once a year, it's never open. So he made his way through the forest, and as he approached the temple, he heard um, uh, voices and laughter from within. And there was heated debate, and then peals of laughter, heated debate, and then peals of laughter. And so he stepped into uh, this temple, and there was a group of about nine young people. He learned they were students at the University of Sophia from, in Tokyo, which was kind of like the Harvard, I guess, of Japan. And they were journalist uh, majors. And 
and they were arguing about the existence of God. And uh, he explained to them what had happened, that he had been awakened by God. And uh, he was there to share with them the gospel. And so he, he shared it with them, and he, and he thought of a story that he had heard many years before, and he, he thought, how do I communicate this to them? And he said there was a, an old man in the sun when the sun was very far from the earth, and so the earth was dim and cold, a dreary place. And the old man of the sun thought, I, I would like to warm the earth and uh, brighten the earth, but I can't without blinding them or consuming them with fire. And his son, Sunlight, said, I will go for you. I will bring just enough uh, uh, heat to warm them and just enough light to brighten their day without blinding them. And it was a fairly good analogy. It didn't break down too quickly. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus came to us. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in him. Jesus came to us as a man in finite terms, in terms we could appropriate to reveal to us the infinite God. Jesus came to us as God. And he suffered in our place. I think Athanasius said, he became what we were, that we might become what he is now. So there was this extraordinary exchange that took place. Do you remember the book, um, um, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens? I think it's like the best-selling book of all time. To date, I think over 200 million copies. <laughs> in circulation, but there's a story, Charles Darnier and, and who was the other character? Um, one was in Paris during the revolution, the other in London, but they were, they were doppelgangers, uh, dead ringers. Um, I remember a number of years ago, uh, uh, Benny Hinn was having a large uh, crusade uh, at, a, at the Maybe Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it seats about 13,000, and and he flew uh, Justice Duplessis and I out to be with him. I'm not endorsing his, his, uh, his um, methods or his doctrine. <laughs> but we went out there, and, and uh, that evening, Maurice Scalar was uh, present, and Benny had him up on the platform. And there were thousands of people there, and he was playing his violin. He's a concert uh, violinist, and he plays just so beautifully. And uh, I had been in the green room that evening before the service began, chatting with a few different people. Ralph Wilkerson, who pastored the large megachurch uh, Melody Land in Los Angeles, was there. And we chatted briefly. Well, the next morning, uh, we went in to, I went back into the green room, and Ralph Wilkerson made his way over to me and said, Larry, I would like you to come minister at Melody Land. Now, I was younger then, and I was itinerating, and I thought, well, that's marvelous. What in the world did I say to him during our brief exchange that impressed him to have me come minister at Melody Land? So he was giving me the names of the secretary who to contact, and he said, I want you to uh, play the violin. My congregation will love it. And I said, Ralph, I, I don't play the violin. Now, Justice Duplessis was, now, Justice and I had been friends for years. I'd spent time with him in South Africa. When he came to the States, he would stay in our home. He knew me very well. He's sitting there listening to this. Ralph said, well, of course you play the violin. I said, Ralph, I'm, I'm, I'm really certain about this. I, I don't play the violin. And he said, you do. You were just a few feet from me last night. I watched you play the violin. I said, Ralph, that wasn't me. Well, of course it was you. <laughs> this was maddening to me. I said, Ralph, I, that was not, that was Maurice Scalar. That was not me. And Justice, who's known me for years, said, Brother, I thought it was you myself. <laughs> so I best, I'm going to have to learn how to play a violin, I guess. <laughs> um, but we were apparently dead ringers. In fact, I think our sister in law phoned Beth. She saw him on television. She said, I saw Larry on TV. And I thought, this is insane. <laughs> um, but that's what these two in, in A Tale of Two Cities were. And so uh, 
One is about to be executed during the revolution and his dead ringer, his doppelganger, stole into the prison that night and they exchanged clothes and he said, I will die in your place and you leave here a free man in my place. That's what Jesus did. He came clothed in, in, in mortality, clothed himself in mortality so that mortals that were, that were separated from God, dead in our sins and trespasses, might uh, become immortal. That's what was accomplished uh, when we received Christ. What was necessary for you to take that step, though, to receive Christ? You had to acknowledge your, blessed are what, the poor in spirit. You had to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. You had to acknowledge your desperate and profound need. You had to acknowledge that you were dead and that you would live throughout eternity separated from God, separated from His life, separated from His light. That you would spend eternity dead, separate from light, separate from life. That's humbling, isn't it? There is, a, there is a deep, penetrating humility that becomes ours when we are willing to acknowledge, I'm lost, I'm without hope, and I'm without God in this world. And I can do nothing, nothing to change that. There is nothing I can ever do to merit salvation. There is, there is no path I can take that will lead me out of death and away from eternal damnation apart from Christ. If you're praying for people, family or friends, to come to Christ, this is the path you want to pray them through. Lord, help them to perceive their desperate need for a Savior. Help them to come to that place of complete humility where they are willing to acknowledge that they can do nothing to change their desperate situation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It is a place of complete neediness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are what? What is the, uh, what is the uh, next? Let's return back to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Blessed are those who mourn. If you recognize that you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and that there is nothing you can do to alter that, then if that is penetrating, if that truth becomes real to you, what is left to you other than to mourn your state? If someone receives a report from their physician that suggests that they might have a terminal illness, what is their response? Fear? Dread? Deep sadness, often a very real depression. Why? A horror story is unfolding in front of them. They're facing these dreadful circumstances. How many of us have really taken the time to understand how desperate we were before coming to Christ? How desperate we are apart from Him. Obviously, if people really knew, if they were able to see beyond um, these four dimensions in which we live and see the reality, these spiritual realities that are identified for us in the Word of God, they would be terrified, wouldn't they? People would be moved to action. But they can't. We can't. But it's explained to us in the Word of God. This morning ought to be the natural state of those who acknowledge 
okay, uh, the future that is theirs apart from Jesus Christ, that acknowledge their spiritual impoverishment. Next is meekness. And this meekness is merely a state of powerlessness. It is someone in, in need of rescue. Well, if you understand that spiritual death is your problem, a real hunger, a real thirsting for righteousness begins to surface, doesn't it? How do I change this? How do I turn this around? How do I access this righteous and holy God? Finally, uh, we read, blessed are the merciful. Why do you suppose that is? Why, why, uh, why would someone who has received mercy become merciful? Well, we can simply identify with other people's desperate need. If we have received so great mercy, suddenly we become a conduit of that same mercy. We want to share that good news with other people. He who is forgiven of much loves much. We become merciful because we understand the mercy that we have received. Now, not everyone has. Jesus told a parable about a man who owed an enormous sum of money and was forgiven that sum of money, but did, did not extend that same mercy to people who owed him money. If we, and this, this affects Christians constantly. As a pastor, I've seen it over the years. I've experienced it in my own life. Suddenly, an absence of mercy toward people desperately in need of it. And if you're not merciful, what typically uh, occupies that space where mercy ought to be? Judgmentalism. Isn't it easy to become judgmental? If we understand deeply the mercy that has been extended to us, I think that we can do nothing but extend mercy to others. It, it is reflexive at that point. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's simply saying this. Once you've passed to this, once you've passed to this place, what, what has happened? You've received suddenly life. And the transforming life and power of Christ begins to work in you and in your heart. And you become at that moment a peacemaker. You have peace with God. Now you wish to have peace with others and lead them. You, you suddenly recognize the extraordinary gift, the ministry of reconciliation that you've been granted, and you want to share it with others. And then finally, what happens? Jesus throws us a curve. <laughs> Blessed are what? Let's, let's look at 5, verse uh, 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Oh, I didn't see that coming, Jesus. Everything was going well there. And then you threw me a curve. What, what is this about? Paul wrote simply to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.12, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Why? God's uh, uh, perspectives differ fairly radically from that of the world. Satan is the God of this world. There are two very different agendas at work, aren't there? And um, if you and I are, are going to uh, allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, our, oh goodness, our approach to life, Don just looked at his watch, I said, oh gosh, this, I'm sorry. Um, you're going to experience a persecution. You don't have to look for it. You don't have to earn it. It's just that if you're leading your life according to the Word of God, which you want to, you do it joyfully, there, there is a, your life will stand out in stark relief against the world around you. And that doesn't make people very happy. Now, the way we respond to that uh, uh, can, can make or break that moment. Um, there is a way to respond to it that's positive and good, and then there's a way that sours everybody, including your, yourself. Um, 
Um, but but uh, if if you are going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution, especially in a day and age when, when um, as a culture, uh, God's word is, there's not a moral consensus in our culture any longer that's essentially based in scripture. Um, it's wandered well beyond that. And so uh, that's, that, that's what happens there. That's the final state of that. And I'm, I'm going to have to close based on that. I wanted to take time tonight. You're like, hey, this feels a little bit different. The pace was different. This was a different word. I, wanted, I really felt impressed tonight to take time, first of all, just to say, this is what, these are the ABCs of salvation. And it's really important that we understand them, I think, and give some thought to them. Because too, uh, too often, we can begin to forget that. And it does impact our approach to the Word of God. It, it impacts our approach to the fellowship of the saints. And it affects our thankfulness and gratefulness uh, toward Him. I, I've actually, when there's, not an, when there's not a felt need, when there's not an existential crisis, I've watched people, they sort of back away from the Word. They back away from fellowship with other believers. Uh, I wouldn't say they grow cold, but somewhat disaffected, and uh, I think, once again, that happens simply because we've forgotten just exactly what we were saved from. We weren't saved from a set of problems here on the earth. Jesus goes about doing good, and that's wonderful. He, he affects our life positively, but there was a gigantic need that he answered for us, uh, and that's the, that's the ball we want to keep our eyes on as we make our way through this life. All right, we'll, we'll finish this next week and then jump over to that third category of heart. And I'm sorry that I went so long. I hope that I've given you something to um, give some thought to in the coming week. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your immeasurable grace and mercy that you've extended to us through Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, um, as we give some thought to this, I pray that you give us understanding. Grant each of us a revelation, Lord, a really penetrating revelation that helps us to grapple with just how great our need has been, just how desperate our plight was, how certain it was apart from Jesus. So that we might rejoice in you daily for so great a salvation, and so that we might be compelled to lovingly and joyfully share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.